How's it going, guys? We got episode 11 of the Flight Performance and Fitness Podcast. Um, you got your host, Dylan Gutile, Jared Collinson. Um, today, we have a special guest, probably our first non-strength conditioning, physical preparation um, person on the line here today. <laughs> Sorry, struggling for words. Um, we have Ryan Martin, the head coach of the New England Free Jacks. So I've actually had the pleasure of working with Ryan for the last two months. Um, I have a lot of good things to say about him and the reason why we wanted to bring him on today is because he's a great educator and as strength conditioning coaches and as physical performance specialists, you know, we have a big role in terms of just educating the people that we work with. So um, hopefully we can take a few things out of Ryan's book and how to communicate with our athletes and, you know, how to, how to get good buy-in. So uh, Ryan, you want to give us a quick rundown of, you know, where you are, where you're from and um, you know, what's, what's brought you to New England? Yeah, great. Um, thanks for having me on the show. It's always a pleasure. You guys run a great cutter over there across the, the uh, office from me, so it's uh, great to be on. Um, basically, very short version. Um, obviously, I'm here now in, in Boston, New England, head coach of the Free Jacks, so pumped around that. Uh, previously, I was with the Melbourne Rebels. Um, I was the strat, kicking strat and uh, skills coach there, working under Dave Vessels, who's a phenomenal coach. Um, I've been coaching Otago. I'm assistant coach there of attack, backs, and kicking for the last three years. Um, and I've also been head coach of the Asia Pacific Dragons based in Singapore. Um, and prior to that, I was a teacher um, in education, a variety of levels from primary school, which is five-year-olds to 12-year-olds, and then secondary school, 13-year-olds uh, to 18-year-olds for 17 years. So um, basically, once I went into professional coaching, she's been a bit of a whirlwind kind of going all around the world coaching, which has been pretty cool. That's awesome. That's great. And yeah, I mean, given the, you know, many different backgrounds, there's just a lot that you can kind of bring to the table from a skill, skill set perspective. Um, jumping right in and kind of getting right into the first question. What are some of the characteristics you think make up a good coach? Um, I, I think coaching's really developed, especially the last decade. Um, and teaching and coaching are basically the same thing now. Um, and, and the great thing about being a teacher is on an average week when you see all your classes um, and then obviously your staff members and the parents, you're making two to 400 connections um, and all your conversations become really important because they pertain to something that's special to that person you're talking to. So if you're dealing with a parent, you know, um, the be all and end all of the successes, you know, they want their child to do as well as possible. So you could have 30 of those conversations in a day. Um, which which gives you the a kind of a gravity around how important it is you know what you're doing and how you're interacting with people. Um, and I think the best coaches have the ability to read environments pretty quickly and understand um, what is the best way um, to A, develop the person, but obviously the whole product of the team as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I think you've got to have a little bit of uh, – you've almost got to be a little bit of a psychologist. You've got to understand um, – what gets people to, to work as a group, but also individually um, make them perform really well. So I think the old days of just pure coaching, like knowing the curriculum really well, um, anyone can go on the internet and get the drill skills and all the greatest content, but it's the best uh, master coaches are the ones that um, have the how and the why and um, obviously get a, a real good buy-in um, for the individual, but also uh, know how to, how to create a, a really cool team environment. Yeah, 100%. Um, yeah, I mean, that's huge. The psychology component, what you're just saying, you, can't, you basically have to be a psychologist. It's just like so yeah. true. I mean, we see that 100% with strength conditioning and training people. It's just 
you know, sometimes they're, they're just coming in and they, for them to be, to have a good day, a good session, they're going to, you're going to have to really hear them out and, and let them say their piece and then, and give them a little feedback and then they can kind of get into their vibe. But um, a lot of times it's just going to take that being able to connect with them first. Yeah. Uh, so as I think I'll, any coach is going to know this of any, any kind of coaching, um, there's going to be those athletes that basically eat in, eat up everything you say, and they just do, you know, follow exactly the, everything you say to the T and then there's going to be those difficult athletes that you have a really hard time kind of getting through to. Um, so what are the, some of the strategies you use to get buy-in from those kind of more difficult personalities that aren't quite as in tune right off the bat? Yeah, it's a great question. And once again, I think that's what separates the, the really good coaches from maybe just the good technical coaches. Um, there's a thing that I read and it says that the law of connection says that you um, must touch a heart before you ask for a hand. And what that means for me is, um, and it's that old saying, you know, people always uh, forget what you say and do, but never uh, forget how you make them feel. So if you can quickly realize what is the biggest motivation for this player, and, and I, I'm pretty realistic in professional rugby, especially that guys want to be famous, like as much as they want to play for the team and die for a brand, um, you know, they're doing this, this is their job. Uh, they, they want money, um, they want to look good. Um, and at the end of the day, if you can make someone famous, they'll, they'll follow you to the ends of the earth. So if you can uh, tap into that and they know that whatever you're doing is actually going to make them better, then even the toughest, gnarliest athletes will come with you on that journey. Um, because if you make them feel as though in your program that uh, they're going to get better and become famous, then um, they'll come with you. Yeah. yeah, that's great. <laughs> um, how do you build such such good trust and um, such big buy-in in an environment so quick, right? So you came into the Free Jacks and, you know, you had coached some of these players and known some of these players, but for the most part, it was a, you know, a completely new environment. And you came in and, you know, after we, we're about five weeks down on the ground, you know, you almost have everybody falling in line. Everybody's, um, you know, when you're speaking, everyone's quiet. No one, no one would dare speak out of line, you know, how, how have you uh, had success with, you know, driving that culture? Yeah, so for me, the big thing you need to do straight away as a, as a head coach or um, of, a, of an organization or, or whatever your role is, being a leader in a program, is you need to be show vulnerability straight away. And I always like people to know my story um, and then they get a real uh, clear idea as to what, what I'm doing here. Um, so the, one of the first things I did was presented to the wider management crew and I used a, a thing that I call Triple H. So you talk about a silent hero in your life, a hardship that you've overcome and also a highlight or a hope and you can present it however you see fit. Um, and I always like to, to do that. And so I presented to the playing group um, and, and talk about my journey to get here. Um, it hasn't been easy. Um, not being an ex-professional player myself to get to this level of the game where I am now. I could only get there through developing players and, and creating winning teams and winning environments. Um, so I think they know, um, you know, for me to come to Boston, I've left my family in New Zealand. Um, so first and foremost, that that's, a, a, you know, me putting my hand on heart saying, hey, I'm here for you guys, because it would have been easy to stay in New Zealand and take the easy route, but I wanted to come here. Um, so I think that gets a little bit of buy-in straight away. Um, and then the second point to that is, as soon as you start coaching, if they feel as though, once again, back to what I said before, they feel as though they're going to get better in your program. And um, I always have a saying at the back of my head when I'm, when I'm coaching, it's make sure you're loyal to the players' futures. Um, so if I've got a player here in my program at the Free Jacks, 
I want to get him to, if his goal is international football um, or playing in the English Premiership or playing Super Rugby level, then that's I'm, I'm on a mission for that. And if they know that, once again, uh, you get that real quick buy -in. Yeah, I mean, what you just spoke to is huge as far as like, you know, if they, because one thing, if they just think that you're looking to be successful for you as a coach, it's like you yeah. want the Free Jacks to be good so that you look good. But if they know that it's you actually care about them as people and you care about their futures, it's a whole nother level of, of understanding and, and kind of connection that you can build. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's awesome. Um, yeah, I think you've got to be uh, real honest as well. Like I've already had some black and white conversations. As long as you tell people where they sit, um, one of the first things I said to the playing group was every Friday at the end of a preseason week, uh, we'll put up a 1-15 to 15, um, like a starting team only based on behaviours and efforts of that week. So everybody knows where they sit in the picking order. And I think that's a really good thing because then there's no grey as to what's happening throughout the week. And they know one of the other things I always say is no one should ever have to guess what you think of them in the room. So I'd hate to think that my playing group would come in and not know like if they're number four ranked or three ranked or whatever. So I think once again, that's an easy way to get good buy-in. Yeah. Well, I love what you said there too, because I mean, especially in our world, you know, people come in with maybe unrealistic expectations pretty frequently. You know, they're, they come in like, oh, I want to lose 20 pounds in a month and a half, or, you know, I want to bench 300 pounds, but you know, they're only benching hundred pounds. So it is very important to kind of say, hey, this is where you're at right now. And um, this is probably what the trajectory of you getting to those goals looks like. And then, you know, finding, you know, metrics and ways to hold them accountable to that along the way. Um, yeah. so they don't get kind of stuck into that long journey, you know, goal versus, you know, these more small, more actionable goals. Um, yeah. But I definitely think meeting them where they're at and kind of giving them, you know, perspective as to what that process looks like and being yeah. honest. Yeah. There's plenty of trainers out there that will, you know, tell this person, oh, yeah, I'll help you lose 20 pounds in a month and a half. And it's just, you know, that like that's just bullshit. And if they do lose 20 pounds in a, in a month and a half, it's probably from bad habits and it's probably from, you know, not the right way to doing things, you know, crash dieting and, you know, starvation and stuff like that. But yeah, know, it's 20 pounds in a month and a half, but that's not going to help that individual. And, um, you know, breaking down that barrier and telling them that and, you know, being kind of giving them the harsh truth of that or finding out their lifestyle choices that aren't, aren't really supporting their goals. That's going to be the thing that gets them the results that they want. Yeah, definitely. Um, Cool. So moving on a little bit. Um, so we've kind of laid out, I think, a little bit about like what you think is like important as a coach and kind of the characteristics and stuff like that. Um, what, do, what do you feel like you maybe do differently than a lot of coaches out there, even, you know, the really successful ones? What do you feel like kind of makes you a little bit unique as a coach that you kind of look at things a little differently? Yeah, um, that's, that's a good question. I, I've kind of, because of um, obviously not having a professional playing background myself, um, I needed to, to create a niche or, or um, a point of difference for my coaching style. And I, I went really deep into skill acquisition um, and looked at what is the quickest way to learn a skill. Um, and I always use the analogy um, of learning to ride a bike. And, and I'm not sure in America, but in New Zealand, you can uh, learn to ride a bike two ways. One is you just jump on the bike and fall and crash and and your mistakes drive you pretty quickly. Or the other way is they put things called trainer wheels on it, um, which keeps the bike stable and then they can bike around. And I, I looked really deeply into that. Um, and, and for me, my philosophy is the kid who's learning to ride the bike without the trainer wheels is always going to be a lot more successful because 
um, they, mis they associate their learning with mistakes um, and they learn to fail fast because if they keep crashing the bike, they're going to keep getting scars on their elbows and knees. Um, and then they need to make a quick decision. Do I really want to learn to ride this bike? And the kids that say yes, then um, their learning process is a lot deeper than the kid who's had that false learning being with the trainer wheels um, and he's ripping around and then um, like it's a very fake learning environment. And I suppose that's what I look at in terms of skill acquisition. Um, and Jared will know this himself. I always have a rule that you should leave a skill session mentally as fatigued. Um, and it's like when in a training session with you guys, uh, you, you want them to go away and, and have um, some type of DOMS or some fatigue and, and appreciation of that they've had a workout. And I try and do that around skill acquisition that guys' brains hurt. Um, because they're, they're, uh, everything they do is um, under pressure and there's always an era of falling off the bike in the skill sessions that I run. Um, and I think that's helped me get to this, obviously this level of the game, um, having a real clear understanding around skill acquisition and how to make players better at certain aspects of the game. And like, a great story for me around that was Sir Ali Bobo. Um, I had him with the Asia Pacific Dragons. He was 40 years of age, phenomenal athlete, had been a professional for 20 years you know, sevens and fifteens. Um, and he had never really been like coach skill acquisition. He just got by on having big long levers, a great physique and awesome talent. And he said to me, Man, I wish I had been doing this twenty years ago. Um, he but you know, he would have he reckons he would have had a, a far better career and access to a lot more uh, zeros on his contracts with um you know, he couldn't kick the ball. Um so things like that for a winger, obviously in the modern game you you've got to be able to kick off both feet and um, so just little things like that, but that was a quite cool affirmation for me working with an athlete like that and, and, and getting an appreciation that uh, how important it is that these guys are getting awesome skill sessions. Um, do you have any specific examples of, of kind of like positions that you might put some, an athlete in to make them kind of learn that, that hard way, almost like setting them up a little bit to fail so that they, you're giving them that feedback. Um, yep. and are there any other situations where, not that you wouldn't necessarily use training wheels, but are there any kind of like constraints you might use in, in, in the way of like training wheels that you would use that you feel like is beneficial um, to kind of help somebody out? Or what do you think about that? Yeah, so whenever I'm, I'm working with athletes in terms of learning a new skill, I'll always try and make sure there's a second stimulus involved. So for example, if it's a catch pass um, and they're passing a simple pass, you know, five meter left to right, uh, spiral pass, I'd make sure that they have a tennis ball in their hand and they're uh, maybe moving it from left to right, so one hand to the other as they're passing the ball. And what you'll find, guys that can successfully pass the ball five metres, you add a tennis ball, and I've got professional athletes, and Jared knows this for a fact, the, the balls will go like two metres. They'll totally forget about rugby passing. And they focus so much on the tennis ball that the aspect that should be the most auto-responsive part of their, their game goes out the window. And I always um, harp on to the players. It's around the, the, the mentality is like when you're learning to drive a car. You know, the first time we look at all the different aspects, the steering wheel, the gearbox, our feet when we're pushing the clutch, let alone even get our eyes up and look outside the, um, you know, the windscreen and work the indicators and so forth. And it's such a clunky experience when you first learn to drive a car. If you think of it after 10 years, you're on your cell phone, you're changing music stations, you're looking out and seeing, you know, <laughs> seeing birds flying or walking whichever way you lean um, and you don't think about changing the gears turning all the stuff and for me um, that's exactly the same around our skills so you've I think you've got to put stimulus uh, where people get uncomfortable doing it something that should be easy um, because that's when you get the deep learning of the skill um, 
So yeah, I always have some type of stimulus, whether it's tennis balls, squash balls, um, or or a time or space constraint where um, something that's simple now has an immense pressure because you've made the space so small to work in or the time, like the speed of it, like I over accentuate it like a remote control, it's on, you know, times 10 speed. Um, so an example is that um, sometimes I'll have three rugby balls and I'll run at them and kick the balls as hard as I can towards them and I've got to catch and pass. I call it machine gun passing. What it does is um, it freaks them out a little bit because there's the aspect of something coming really fast at you. But secondly, they've got to pass the first ball so quick because they've got another one coming. It's going to hurt them if they miss it. So what it does is quickly um, gives them an appreciation of the hand speed required. Um, and that's like Jared's had four balls in his head constantly when he's doing these drills with me, so he knows what I'm talking about. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, definitely can attest to that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you've already alluded to it a little bit too. And um, I mean, we, we don't and I always talk about all the mistakes that we've made over the years from, you know, from a business perspective, as well as, um, you know, coaching perspective, what would you say some of the biggest, um, you know, mistakes you made through your coaching career are, and, you know, what have, how have you righted the ship and, you know, figured out a different way to go about doing them? Yeah. Uh, the biggest thing I, I found when I first started and it was coaching at first 15 levels. So that's like the elite schoolboys level in New Zealand. Um, as I, I inherited some really good players and, for a three-year period, I think we lost one or two games. And I thought I was a really good coach um, until we had a significant loss um, by about 30 points. And I actually realised I didn't know anything. Um, I didn't know how to fix the loss. And I'd been getting by on my own ego and good players. Um, so it was a real uh, eye-opener for me around going and learning how to coach. Because at that time, I just had good players who'd, who'd made good decisions and Yes, I provided some great drills and so forth, which I'd found on the internet, but I didn't really understand the how and the why and, and, and how to coach intent. Um, and then I went away to a course, uh, a, high, a high performance coaching course in New Zealand. There's only six coaches selected. And I turned up on day one and the other five coaches all got out, you know, iPads and laptops and all these. And I pulled out a wee notebook, a wee 1B5, which is a very small wee, And I kind of realized I didn't, I actually was not even close to the level I should be at. Um, the funniest thing, I still carry that 1B5 around with me now. I call it my Bible because I just sat in that room um, and just learned so much and got appreciation of what I didn't know. Uh, I think it's hard when you're okay at something, you almost want to, you don't want people to tell you things. You, you've got to lose your ego very quickly. And that's what I learned. And it's the conversation I have with a lot of coach, aspirational coaches now. Um, as if you had a little bit of success, sometimes that's actually a bad thing because you're getting by on things that maybe don't exist. Um, and the other biggie for me, Wayne Smith, who's probably the, what they call the professor, he's one of the best coaches in New Zealand. Uh, he coached the All Blacks. He said, you should always give your um, content away because whatever you're doing, if you're giving it away, it means you have to learn and be better. Um, and so that kind of stuck with me because I used to be quite selfish around holding on to my own ideas and not sharing. And now I'll just give stuff away all the time and, Put stuff out there because it means I have to keep developing to keep ahead of what I'm giving out um, and that was a big thing once again my ego had to take a bit of a hit there um, and, and uh, realize that I wasn't as good as I thought I was and, and I invested probably 10 years of learning and um, researching and just being a fly on the wall I lost my anxiety around um, asking questions to important people because I used to would go to courses and you'd 
I'd be one of the people that would just sit and listen to the guest speaker and then leave. Whereas now I'll go and shake their hand after and ask them questions. And you get some, I've had some amazing one-on-one moments that other people who just leave the room wouldn't get. And it was an anxiety I had, you know, you don't want to be like this guy going and looking like the, the kiss ass person with the group. But um, I got rid of that anxiety pretty quickly because I realized I needed, needed to do that. And um yeah, it's kind of worked out pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Say so. <laughs> Just got to swallow that pride, huh? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's huge. Um, so pretty much the last question we got here. So you kind of just spoke to like, you know, one of the biggest moments in your career almost is like going to this course and kind of seeing where you measured up with other coaches, but also just the amount of knowledge you took in. Um, yep. So what's one thing maybe in the last years that you, you know, either a book or some continuing education that you've taken in um that really made a you know a difference in the way you think and how have you kind of applied that yeah um i actually uh when i was in melbourne i, I listened to an audiobook uh joe schmidt who uh, was the head coach of the irish team irish national team and i took a lot uh from him around um how he looked at the game and once again broke down the learning process um especially around skill acquisition and he went really deep into um, the, the way that players, the intent that they do their work um, and having a real understanding of how and why they'll get better doing this certain drill. Um, so he, he comes from a teaching background. So I, I enjoyed that because that was more of an affirmation for me that I was on the right track. He's an international coach who basically was the same mindset as myself. So that was a more of an affirmation for me. A, a great learning book. I read uh, Sir Clive Woodward's book. Um, and he talked around the successful campaigns that he had run with the English team. Obviously, they won the World Cup in Australia um, in 2003. And he, he talked around that campaign um, around preparing a team to, to win, like the winning mentality. And he actually, I actually stole something from him, which he called uh, the teacup method, which is thinking clearly under pressure, which we're using with the Free Jacks this year. Um, and it, it goes back to making sure there's always a stimulus in training. So guys, it's very easily easy as a coach to physically hurt people in training. Um, you can obviously design drills with it and, you know, blood can be splattered and everyone's yahooing. But can you do the blood splatter, but with also a brain aspect of it? And that was probably the big shift in my thinking is you, you always want the intent, but can you do it with the intelligence as well? And that's basically when he had the English team, they were obviously big physical guys. Um, and they had, you know, previously been labelled pretty wooden um, around their skill sets. So he he had a thing around respecting the ball um, and not accepting like ball drops in training. And it's something that we've taken on in the free jacks as well, um, having a real respect for the ball and, and um, a, a physical punishment of the ball being dropped in training kind of makes the importance of the ball not being dropped in training pretty cool. So Jared designs these really cool skirmishes that we have each, which is just different. We physical challenges if, if we haven't respected the ball. Um, so that's probably a, the, the biggest learning I've taken from a book this year, just around how to design your training to, to mentally get as much out of it as well as physically. Yeah, that's great. The guys love the skirmishes too. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, that was a, I think there's a training maybe four or five days ago and I think of the 15 rhino balls, 12 of them were blood splattered. Um, so it was a great sign. <laughs> yeah, it was like some uh, revolutionary war out there. <laughs> <laughs> but I've been telling Dylan, I've been telling all, like tons of people on flight, I'm like, yeah, so um, 
you know, the head coach, when, um, when a ball gets dropped, we, we just all fight. <laughs> and he was, like, he was like, what does that mean? And I was like, oh, you know, like, you know, if someone drops the ball and they, they don't, they clearly don't care about the rest of the team. They don't care about the ball. So, you know, they just, they have a fighting partner and they just go and they fight for 30 seconds until Ryan blows the whistle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Yeah. When I, when we were first talking about it and, you know, I eventually it was, it was made clear that like, there's some kind of like drill that where you're, you know, you're, you're wrestling or doing some kind of thing with somebody. I was like, for a second, I thought he was like, I was like, oh, it's like straight up, like, is this fight? Like, <laughs> all right, like, <laughs> that's one way to do it. Fuck it. <laughs> that's pretty intense, but I like it. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks, Ryan, man. It's been great. And um, honestly, a lot, a lot of takeaways with that. And I'm, I'm excited for, you know, the next couple months learning under you and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, just from like an educational perspective, I think that, you know, a lot of, a lot of these coaches out there can, you know, really give a lot of, a lot of um, perspective as to, you know, where you can kind of better yourself as a human being as well as, you know, in your profession as well. Yeah, no, that's great. Thanks for having me on. Of course, man. Um, have a good one. Awesome. Yeah. Cheers, Ryan. Right. We'll be in touch. See you later. <laughs> yeah.